if it's a highly, uh, you know, a business with a lot of technical equipment and things, you might want some kind of technician, uh, qualified repair person, et cetera, that can help you look at that sort of thing. If it's an industry you're not that familiar with, you might want a coach or a consultant specific to that industry, someone who maybe used to run a business in that field who can help you take a look at it. The way that I help people is by looking at the deals and helping to assess the business. You know, I've looked at so many files over the years that I, I work through them very quickly and I can show people where the potential problems are, what they need to investigate more and give them an idea of what the value is. And that can save people a lot of time, especially when we're talking about one of those sellers who who grossly overestimates the value of their business. Three, two, one, zero, ignition, liftoff. Ending small business failure. Welcome to the Small Biz Chat Podcast with the number one small business expert, Melinda Emerson. Melinda's goal is to end small business failure, and she'll give you the information you need to succeed and live the life you dream of. Now, here's your host, the small biz chat lady herself, Melinda Emerson. Hi, everybody. This is Melinda Emerson, the small biz lady, America's number one small business expert. And it is my pleasure to welcome you to another episode of the Small Biz Chat podcast. We have an amazing show in store for you today. And if you're looking to buy or sell a business, I have an expert here who's going to talk about both sides of the equation and what you need to know so that you're prepared and don't lose your shirt. The goal of all of this is to help you with your long-term business strategy. Here on the Small Biz Chat podcast, we talk about how to start and grow a successful business. Our mission is to end small business failure, and we bring in guests with amazing expertise to give you advice from multiple angles to help you take your business to the next level. Now, the Small Biz Chat Podcast is a peer-to-peer mentoring show. We're really about giving small business owners invaluable business advice that they otherwise would have to pay for. The Small Biz Chat Podcast can be seen on my Small Biz Lady YouTube channel and on my Facebook page. So please do me a favor and subscribe to both and share it. More people need to know about how to get great information to grow their business. Now, let me introduce my guest. His name is David Barnett. He loves to say that it took him 10 years to unlearn what he learned in business school. After a career in advertising sales, Barnett started several businesses, including a commercial debt brokerage house. Helping to finance small and medium-sized businesses led to the field of business brokerage. Over several years, Barnett sold dozens of businesses for others while also managing his own portfolio of income properties and started him in a career as a local private investor. Barnett regularly consults with professionals and banks on business and asset values. Presently, he also works with entrepreneurs and would-be entrepreneurs around the world who are buying, selling, or trying to improve their businesses. You can get more information about him at davidcbarnett.com. David, welcome to the Small Biz Chat Podcast. Oh my goodness, I'm excited to be here. It's great to be here. This is an awesome show. Well, I I gave just the snippet of your story, but why don't you tell us your backstory? Like what made you become so passionate about being a business broker and investor? Well, Melinda, you forgot to use the F word there. So I'm a former business broker. and, And the reason that I got into business brokerage 
is is because I I was doing the the commercial debt brokerage back before the great financial crisis. And during the GFC, a whole bunch of the companies that I was using as a source of financing went under because of the events on Wall Street and everything. And I realized during that time that I had been approached by a lot of people looking to get money to buy existing businesses, and they were very poorly served in the marketplace. And I realized there was an opportunity to become a business broker and to do things a little bit better. And so I joined up with one of the big uh, franchise brands in the business brokerage industry because they gave me access to training. I did that for three years and it was the most interesting thing I've ever done because you're trying to figure out how to solve monumental problems and get two parties that may be very far apart to find a deal together that's also acceptable to a bunch of other people, accountants, attorneys, bankers, et cetera. And brokers get paid when the deals are done. And so even though I did, uh, it was over 36 deals in three years, it sounds like a lot. But in each one of those years, there was a period of seven to nine months with no closings, which meant I lived through an incredibly wild cash flow roller coaster, as you might imagine, with, with no money coming in for long periods. I eventually left and became a banker. But while I was working for the bank, the phone kept ringing. It was people coming to me looking for help on these deals. Eventually, I got back into the world of helping people buy and sell businesses as a consultant. And so now I work with buyers and sellers. I have no financial interest in whether a deal is done. I just I, I, I borrowed the business model of attorneys and accountants. So I basically work with people, build them for what I do. And it's good because sometimes my advice to people is to not do a deal because it doesn't make sense. And, and there's a lot of those potential landmines out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so let's just talk about buying a business first. So sure. what is the best place to find a business to buy? The, the, the best place? Well, people often start with the easiest place, which is those websites that advertise businesses for sale. And they're easy because it's all in one place and you can look it up online. The problem is that you're competing with all the other buyers when you're looking at those websites. And, and the other thing is that 80% of deals happen without any kind of intermediary. So buyers and sellers find each other through different means. They come together and they do deals without the business ever being advertised for sale. And so the best way to find a business is to figure out what you want. Because if you know what kind of business it is you want to acquire, Finding them is as easy as finding a copy of the Yellow Pages or whatever the modern online version of that is. Because if you decide, for example, I want a machine shop in upstate New York, you can find them. Then it's a matter of creating the relationships and meeting the people in that industry to find out who is open to an opportunity to exit, which is what essentially you're selling. You're selling an opportunity to exit. And a lot of the times there's a mismatch where you'll meet someone who doesn't want to sell but then because you're active in that market, maybe a year later, that person does. So sometimes it takes a little bit of time. Well, I, that was actually going to be my follow-up question. So what is the time frame like? Like, do you meet somebody and six months later, they're leaving, they're waving goodbye with their big old check in their pocket? Or does it take, you know, one to two years to build rapport so that someone would be willing to sell you their business? It's a great question. And 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 the the fact is that it's different for every person and it's different by the type and size of business that you might be looking at. So I work with a lot of different people that are looking at buying businesses. Some people find a business on one of those websites I mentioned and a, 
you know, two months later, they're they're getting the keys to the new business. Other people will spend years doing a search, talking with people, sometimes talking with the same people off and on over a period of time. Um, sometimes, and this may be surprising to some, but sometimes people get into the market and they believe their business is worth more than it really is. And so sometimes, <laughs> so, sometimes a buyer and seller will talk, but they can't come to terms. And that seller will believe that the business is worth more. They'll they'll go out looking for someone else who's willing to pay more. And then a few months later, they'll talk again and still may not come to terms. I've got clients that I've worked with who've had on-again, off-again conversations for over a year with someone before they finally came to an agreement and actually did a deal. And then once you involve the banks, you can then add further to that timeline because of their process. So is it about when those things go on with this back and forth business for a year, is that because the seller finally gets the realization of what their business is really worth, or they finally went out and had a professional valuation done, and that's how they know what their business is worth? I mean, I know that it's always like some multiple of EBITDA, right? But I think that, um, you know, I really think that that I do think there's an issue out there. People think their business is is worth more than it is. And then I think there's a group of people who don't think their business is worth very much when in fact it is. And mm-hmm. so I think there's, I, and you you could tell me better than I could tell you, but have you seen a lot on both sides of this? It, it's it's a question of compulsion and mot- or motivation, if you will. So, you know, businesses sell for a multiple of cash flow, as you just said, but in the world of small businesses, that multiple is a pretty low multiple. It's a very low number. And so a lot of the times when I meet with business owners and we talk about selling, I'll show them what other businesses like theirs have sold for. And they almost all have the same response, Linda, Melinda. They say, if I just stayed here for a couple of years, I'd have the same money. And so it's difficult to get excited about that. And so the reason businesses go up for sale is not so someone can cash out like Mark Zuckerberg does when he sells his stock, right? <laughs> The reason these small businesses go up for sale is because somebody reaches a point in their life when they realize they can no longer carry on being the operator. So this is a personal reason or retirement. And it's just a question of how big a reason, how what does a timeline look like and how motivated do they have to be? People who plan on retiring tend to be less motivated than someone who's been told by their doctor maybe that they're suffering from an illness. And so that motivation is one of the key things that's going to make someone act more quickly or not. So how much money typically do you have need to buy a business? Well, you know, most of your listeners are probably in the United States and in the US, you've got the SBA guarantee program for loans. And so a good rule of thumb is that whatever the seller's discretionary earnings is going to be of a business you want to buy, and that is the money available to a full-time owner operator in the business. So this is the pay of that manager and the profit of the business, all that money that's available to a full-time owner operator. Let's say you want to go out and get a business that has a discretionary earnings of $100,000. You're going to need about half of that in liquid cash or equity. And with that amount of money, you can likely put together a deal if you're able to qualify for some SBA financing and get the seller to maybe finance a portion of it as well. So you do an earnout with the seller? Is that how the seller finances it? Well, you know, an earnout relates to the future activity of the business, mm-hmm. and there's there's all kinds of ways that you can pay a seller over time. 
Most often it's what we call a seller note where it's a fixed amount that the buyer has to pay. So it, it's a debt instrument, but it's a debt instrument being financed or held by the seller. And it's really important for these small business deals because you know when you buy a house, for example, or a car, you can have experts look at the house, look at the car, inspect it, tell you if there are any kind of problems. When it comes to a business, we've got so many moving parts and things that are really difficult to measure, like the reputation of the business in the community or how the clients and customers in the community feel about the owner of the business, for example. Because when you buy a business, that owner is usually departing and you're taking their role. And so there's so many of these unknowns that we need to rely on some kind of mechanism that basically holds the seller to account to be accountable. And so these seller notes are usually subject to offset in the case of a material misrepresentation. So if there was a lie or or an error or some kind of uh, untrue thing that the seller told you, you have a mechanism for recourse against that note. But it also creates confidence. You know, as a buyer, if you're going to buy a business and the seller says, you know what, you remind me of myself 20 years ago, and I really think you've got what it takes to make this work. And I believe in you. So I'm going to finance part of this for you. It gives the buyer confidence. It also gives the banker confidence because the banker understands that this seller knows the business better than anyone and the seller's willing to finance part of it. It makes it easier for the banker to believe that the buyer's got what it takes as well. Interesting. So if you decide that you're going to buy a business, who do you need on your team? Well, it's it's usually a team effort. And at a minimum, you're going to need the help of an attorney and an accountant. And then there's a whole array of other kinds of specialists that you might have on your team. So if it's a highly, uh, you know, a business with a lot of technical equipment and things, you might want some kind of technician, uh, qualified repair person, et cetera, that can help you look at that sort of thing. If it's an industry you're not that familiar with, you might want a coach or a consultant specific to that industry, someone who maybe used to run a business in that field who can help you take a look at it. The way that I help people is by looking at the deals and helping to assess the business you know, I've looked at so many files over the years that I work through them very quickly and I can show people where the potential problems are, what they need to investigate more and give them an idea of what the value is. And that can save people a lot of time, especially when we're talking about one of those sellers who who grossly overestimates the value of their business. So I've had people say that sometimes you need a bedside banker. What is that? A bedside banker? I don't know. I, I don't trust any of them to let them near my bed. <laughs> yeah. Someone told me that you need a bedside banker involved in one of those deals too, but I guess we'll skip over that. So, you know, if you decide that you want to sell your business, mm-hmm. what is the best way to let people know that you're interested in selling your business? Well, the first thing you want to do is not let anyone know. Uh, confidentiality is one of the critical elements in preserving the value of a business. If if the main stakeholders, so think about your suppliers, your customers, your employees, your current bankers or other people lending you money, if they find out the business is for sale, they can make assumptions that there's something wrong with the business. Most people are not business people. Most people are happy working in a job. And you know, for the average person that, you know, watches football and movies, when they hear that a business is up for sale, it often means that there's something wrong with that business. And so we don't want people to know it's up for sale because we don't want people to worry about the future. All of your best employees always have job prospects. 
with your competitors. And so if word gets out that a business is for sale, you could lose employees. Customers might worry that, you know, your warranty offer isn't going to be very good because you're planning to close up shop. You could have bankers worried that there's something wrong with your business. Suppliers might decide to pull trade credit from you and they might want to be paid cash on delivery for different products. So you want to keep it secret and you need to come up with a plan. So you can either ask yourself, who is the most likely buyer of my business and work to create a network to get you in front of those people? Or you can go to a professional like a business broker who's going to help show you what your business may be worth and can help to promote it in a confidential fashion. So when positioning your business to sell, what do you think are the top three things that a a seller, a business owner needs to keep in mind? Yeah. So number one, we already talked about was confidentiality. So you want to keep it a secret because if word gets out, the business can be ruined. Number two is cash flow. The value of a business is always determined by the cash flow. So the more cash flow there is, the better it is for the price, but also the consistency and regularity of the cash flow is key. When I see a business that has, you know, performance that jumps and sinks by 30, 40% every year, it, it causes a little bit of uneasiness because you don't really know what the future is going to hold for a business like that. But if I see regular performance that's growing at an inflationary rate or maybe a little bit better, and it's an eddy steady business that keeps going up every year, that gives me great confidence it's likely to continue, for example. The third thing is that every buyer who looks at that cash flow, they're going to say, wow, this is a great cash flow. They're then going to be faced with this question. Do I believe it will continue under my stewardship? And so that's a big question because you know if I'm going to invest in Coca-Cola, if I buy the stock of that company, I get the benefit of all the leadership and management that's over there today. They're going to carry on if I become a shareholder. But when I buy a small business, the leader is often going to depart and I'm going to take their role, which means that I need to be certain that I'm going to be able to pick up and learn how to run this business just as effectively as the current owner. And this is where things like operations manuals and business systems and checklists and other management tools become so critical because we're going to have to show this buyer that, yeah, I'm going to be able to teach you how to run this. Um, Quick story. I sold a restaurant once. The buyer was worried that the employees might leave and he, he had never run a restaurant before. And he said, well, what, how do I know these employees are going to stick around? And the seller looked at him and said, it's a restaurant in a year. They're all going to be gone. And then explained the system he had developed for how to find great employees and determine whether they were motivated and responsible people very quickly. And he then described all the ads he was using online and his methodology. And he said, I'm going to teach you this whole system so that you're going to be able to use that system to replace these people as they turn over. And that system is what allowed the buyer to have confidence and move forward with the deal, even though those employees were likely going to turn over. Now, what about the kind of deals where people ask the the original owner to stay on for a year or two through a transition? Is that common? It, it depends on the type of business. And so the more complex a business is or the more tied the clientele is to that individual person, then the longer the transition period might be. So in some professional practices, for example, people are going to be asked to stay on longer than in a business like you know, a retail store, for example, where skills are going to transform, transform more readily. Also, it's important not to just think about these transitions in a, as a period of time. 
A lot of buyers will believe that there's a lot of secrets in a business that they're going to take a long time to learn. They'll ask for, you know, oh, I want the seller for three months or four months, et cetera. And what I, what I point out to people is that whenever they've had a new job in the past, they likely have, you know, learned quite a bit and been very functional after a few weeks, but then they needed someone's guidance from time to time going forward to make sure they stayed on track. And so I often advise buyers to look at transition periods where there's a certain fixed period of time, like six or eight weeks in the beginning, but then they have the right to have the seller come back maybe for five or 10 days in the following year to come and follow up and to, and to consult with them when certain events happen in the business that might require a little more guidance over the course of time. Well, that's an interesting thought. That's an interesting thought. All right, David, let's talk about business valuation. This is a big, big issue like that that people always seem to struggle with. What is my business worth and what do I need to do? How do I figure it out? So how do you advise people on that? Well, the whole key is to get back to a number called discretionary earnings, which is the amount of money that would have been available to an owner operator that worked full-time if they had taken over your business at some point in the past. So that's the wages you paid yourself if you if you wrote yourself a w2 it's the profit of the business and it's the things that you chose to spend money on that weren't actually part of the business's need like maybe your teenage daughter's cell phone so we go through and we add up those things to find out what is that cash flow and then depending on the type of business that you're in we then multiply that number by a factor that we can find, and I have access to private databases of past transactions. So a bar or restaurant is going to have a lower multiplier than a machine shop because they would be considered a a riskier business. So we multiply out the cash flow, and that gives us something called an enterprise value. And that enterprise value includes everything required to make the business's cash flow flow. And this is where people get hung up and a little bit confused because part of what makes a business go is the operating capital. And depending on what kind of business you have, there's different considerations that go into what part of the operating capital needs to be included in that enterprise value. So one of the common mistakes that people make is they look at the cash and receivables and the payables, and they exclude that from this conversation. But if I need money to finance my customers' purchases through receivables, then that money required is just as important to making the business function as a forklift I'm using to load my truck. And that's the way you need to think about it. Operating capital is just like any other piece of equipment. You need to figure that out or you'll end up either over or undervaluing the business. So what are some of the common mistakes people make when they're buying a business? Well, there's a few. In fact, I wrote a book called 21 Stupid Things People Do When Trying to Buy a Business. Uh, because I kept running into the same ones over and over again. And so you know, here are some top ones. The, the, the biggest one is failing to understand the value of your own labor. So when I, when I talk about discretionary earnings, that's the money available to a full-time owner-operator, which means you got to work full-time to get that money. So when you're looking at that cash flow, don't think of it all as profit. Part of it has to be taken aside to actually represent the work you're doing. And that money's got to come home to you know feed your family and pay your bills and all that kind of stuff. People consistently undervalue themselves in this. The other one is the value of capital. So if you put in some cash into this highly risky venture, which is a small business, 
you need to earn a rate of return on the cash you put in. People often forget about that. They'll put a down payment in and they'll never think about the rate of return on their own money, which should be far greater than the rate of interest you pay the bank because the bank is in a less risky position than you are. Another one would be um, overcommitting cash flow. So I'll see people use that discretionary earnings. They'll undervalue their labor. Then they'll commit too big a portion of the cash flow to their debt service payments. And they'll end up with what we call tight shoes. So all of a sudden, they don't have a lot of wiggle room. And if some minor problem happens in the business, suddenly they're in a position where they have trouble making a bank loan payment or they have to cut one of their own paychecks, for example. And so people will paint themselves into a corner sometimes because they are a little bit too optimistic. Uh, They think that they're going to improve the business right away. I always say to people, if you're buying a successful business from someone who's been running it for a very long time, there is no doubt that person you're buying from is the expert. And so we should not assume that we're going to do better than that person immediately. We may bring improvements to the business, but we should give ourselves time. And for the first couple of years, you should just assume that you're going to do exactly the way the seller has done because you're going to learn from that person. And I don't recommend rocking the boat in a business until you fully understand why things are done the way they are. Because if there's a system in there, there's probably a reason why it was put there. I love it. I love it. All right. Last question. What is the best business advice you've ever been given? Okay. So uh, often when things fail, we do a postmortem. And I was once advised, do a postmortem in advance. So if you are getting into any kind of business activity, just ask yourself, if this doesn't work, what will likely have been the cause? And then you can consider some of the likely problems that may arise and maybe change your plan a little bit to address those things and try to give yourself a more resilient position. I love it. I love it. David, thank you so, so, so much. Your insight has been really refreshing and, and interesting. And I feel like I learned some stuff. Maybe maybe one day I can sell my business. Who knows? Thank you to David Barnett. If you're looking to buy or sell a business, look him up at davidcbarnett.com. Now, listen, if you're interested in starting your dream business in 2023, I want to encourage you to check out my new course, Become Your Own Boss. It is a 10-week online course that is going to give you everything you need to launch your dream business. It starts January 31st. I'm doing it in partnership with Drexel University. So I can also get you some CEU credits if that's something that you need. I'm going to help you build a business plan and a sales plan so that you're going to be able to drive sales on day one of your business. If you're interested in checking out the course, head over to our URL, tinyurl.com forward slash B-Y-O-B Drexel. Now, thank you so much for joining us tonight on this episode of the Small Biz Chat Podcast. The mission of the Small Biz Chat Podcast is to end small business failure. I'm Melinda Emerson, Small Biz Lady, your host, and I will leave you with this. You never lose in business. Either you win or you learn. God bless everybody. Thanks for listening to the Small Biz Chat Podcast with Melinda Emerson. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and join us next Wednesday for more fantastic information and interviews. You can find more sources and small business success strategies by visiting Melinda's website, succeedasyourownboss.com. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week.